Welcome to the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast. I'm Dr. Millicent Ravello, and I'm here with my hardworking and extremely, extremely happy co-host, Dr. Jay Calvert. I am hardworking. You are hardworking. And I I am happy, actually. So I'm glad that I'm hardworking, and I'm glad that I'm happy about being hardworking, because it has been... It's been a been a big week this week. A lot of surgery, a lot of hard surgery. I would say that you, I find you to be happiest when you are working very hard. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah, I think I am because I feel like I'm accomplishing something. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah, exactly. Well, what we are trying to accomplish today is a little bit of education on breast implant placement. So the topic of breast implants is huge, and you could go through every single detail. Da-dunch. <laughs> or sometimes just modest. Yeah, sometimes, it's, sometimes it's a modest topic. <laughs> In my world, a lot of times it's, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But uh, today we're breaking it down to – I have a story about that in a second. Today we're breaking it down to just the basics of implant placement. And here's my little sidebar story. So I was going to do an implant case a few days ago, and I knew that you had an implant case the day before me. And we have a whole consignment of implants in our center, but I wanted to make sure that you didn't use the same implants that I was going to use in case we didn't have any extras for the next day. And so I went back to talk to Ryan, our OR nurse, and I was like, ah, do you know what size Dr. Calvert's going to be using for his case tomorrow? He was like, probably really big. (laughs) 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 I was like, yeah, you're right. I'm probably fine. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's, look, that's, that's who comes to me. That's what they want. Um, yeah, I mean, so I have a lot of these, you know, fitness pros. I mean, they're and they're tall a lot of times, and mm-hmm. you know, tall uh, women need bigger implants to really? fit their their taller frame. frames. I mean, that's just the way it, it is. is. Yeah. And if they've been working out a lot, their upper body usually is a little bit broader than like a petite little girl might otherwise be. Yeah, I mean, so the yes, I do. <laughs> You know, 600 cc's is kind of my favorite spot. That's that's, that's my sweet spot. That's uh, good. That's, every surgeon kind of has like their sweet spot. Like if, if you were like were to poll a surgeon and like pull their numbers, you'd probably find like a range that's used pretty much more than others for any given surgeon. And all of us have a range of patients. So yours is probably 600. Mine's between like four and 450. And then others are like three to 350. Like everybody has like a, a sweet spot range that they use. It's true. And and this week I actually did under, all of my implants were under 400. Look at you. I know. See? You're they're, they're, breaking they're, out of your mold. Uh, and and by the way, like that just depends on what your patient's looking for. This is yes. a very customized operation. Yes. Um, the fact that I did, you know, two breast augmentations in one week is is a little bit unusual for me. I I do more breast uh, redo operations. People who've yeah. had implants who Same. who need a lift, who need like my my I, and I do a lot of breast surgery. Like everybody knows me from like you know the Newsweek poll and. You know, you're number three in rhinoplasty, yay, you know, and the facelifts and all that stuff. But, you know, I do a lot of breast work and I love doing it. And it's just part of being a plastic surgeon for me. Right. We all do it. And not to say that, like, if you come to us, those are the implant sizes that you're going no, to get. you're going to get a you're, custom You're going to get a custom made. But, like, you know, plastics or, you know, patients tend to find plastic surgeons that kind of have a look that they like. Yep. But for sure. what we're talking about today, a little less sexy than, than sizes, is the placement. Like, where are these going to go? And so there are really three locations that a breast implant can go. 
The first one going from deep to superficial is submuscular. That means placing the implant under the pectoralis muscle. This is the pectoralis major. It inserts sort of on the shoulder bone and it has diagonal fibers and goes all the way across your chest to the sternum. And so the pectoralis major is released and the implant sits underneath it. That is submuscular. The next level up is subfascial. The fascia is a thick connective tissue layering. It's not that thick. It's a connective tissue layering over the muscle. It separates the muscle fibers from the breast tissue. So you can lift that fascia up and put an implant under the fascia, kind of in between the surface of the muscle and the breast tissue on top. And then the most superficial placement is subglandular. That means that it's over the muscle, over the fascia, directly underneath all of the breast tissue. Yeah, and and that's what I wanted to talk about today because there's a lot of... Uh, so first of all, I think the thinking about where to place it is changing and for several reasons, which we'll get into. And then also I think that um, breast reconstruction has sort of altered the way people think about breast augmentation. You know, breast reconstruction is when somebody's had a mastectomy, their breast has been removed. Typically we use either, you know, an autologous reconstruction with either a, a tram flap, a, you know, a flap of their own tissue from somewhere that's put up there and made into a breast, or we use implants. And implants are the most common way that breast reconstruction's performed. And typically in the past, we used to put everything submuscular, but we're seeing today that putting the implants under the remnant of the gland or under the, uh, the, the skin actually looks better because the implants are better. We can do that yes. now because the devices are better. And so let's just do a brief history lesson of breast implant placement. So back in the day, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when these are sort of, you know, coming in vogue. Pretty new. Pretty new. Implants were being placed under the breast tissue, so subglandular. It was over the muscle, under the breast. And those implants had problems. They were very commonly becoming um, what's called capsular contracture. They got hard. And because they were directly under the breast tissue, they looked like you know, balls on the chest. They kind of had a very obvious look to them. And so plastic surgeons started experimenting with putting implants under the muscle in the late 80s, 90s. And they found that that provided much better coverage. The implants looked a little bit more natural, not so stuck on the chest. And we noticed that we had decreased rates of capsular contracture. And we had these very well-known studies that came out over the past couple decades that show implants placed under the muscle have decreased chances of undergoing capsular contracture. So for the past, I would say, 20 years or so, putting implants in under the muscle has kind of become the, quote, standard. And this is for cosmetic implants. Right. The story is a little different for breast reconstruction. So breast reconstruction has a similar trajectory. A long time ago in the 80s, 70s, they were putting implants in after mastectomy right under the skin. They looked awful. They all had capsular contracture. <laughs> they were so terrible. <laughs> they were so bad. It's like, That's what led to all the tram flaps and the latissimus dorsi right. flaps and all these muscle flaps that you know, really made the breasts look at least like soft tissue instead right. of looking like hard, hard rocks. rocks. And the thought was like, well, at least she has something to put in a bra. But they did not look cute because they all looked hard and superficial. So then as the trajectory changed with cosmetic breast implants going under the muscle, reconstructive surgery started putting their 
expanders or implants under the muscle. And that improved the appearance substantially because now you had a thicker layer of coverage. It wasn't directly under the skin and so visible. Because that's the thing with a mastectomy is there's no breast tissue. No, it's it just is a just flap skin. Of skin. So you put skin over a hard implant, it doesn't look right. So that muscle gave it a nice sort of subtle coverage and a little bit more soft tissue to build a new breast on. The problem we found with breast reconstruction is what's called animation deformity. And that's going to become sort of the highlight or a part of this podcast. And there's two ways of thinking about animation deformity. Animation deformity in a breast reconstruction patient and a cosmetic patient. And they're totally different. That's right. The the animation deformities in the cosmetic patients typically are at the medial border of the of the uh, pack. And you can... And the you area see, right next to the sternum. Yeah, right where... Very good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm trying to keep it real. Yeah, so the, this area near the sternum, uh, near your breastbone, you know, when you flex the pec, you see the implant moving around. It can push the implant down. It can, uh, it just, it looks like something's going on. You can tell there's an implant there. And, and breasts aren't supposed to move. They're not supposed to move like that. <laughs> you can't that. flex your breasts. <laughs> Unless you have an implant. Then you can do like a party trick. One yeah, side, other side, one side, Exactly. <laughs> but, but I mean, maybe some people want to flex their breasts. I, I don't know. But the, um, but that sort of, it's distracting because people are like, oh, you know, and then when I do this, like the implant does something funky and I don't really like that. So I'm, I'm self-conscious of wearing like low cut dresses and things like that. So that animation deformity, different from the, the mastectomy reconstruction patient. animation deformity. And so those patients, it's different because these patients have no breast tissue, right? So the skin is sitting directly on top of the muscle. And if you've ever seen muscle, it has striations and fibers. So when you contract the muscles, there's nothing camouflaging the rippling of the muscle itself. And the skin is attached directly to those muscle fibers. So the skin does this weird rippling thing. You don't really see that with cosmetic breast implants. Cosmetic implants, you kind of see a little movement of the implant, but you don't see the skin itself moving. In the breast reconstruction patients, you see this weird skin rippling thing happening because there's no tissue in between the muscle and the skin. And so as a result of that kind of disturbing animation deformity, breast reconstruction surgeons started going back to doing, now it's not subglandular because there's no gland tissue left. The mastectomy removed it all. Now it's called prepectoral reconstruction. And that means putting the implant over the muscle, under the skin, because there's no gland anymore. And we have found that that completely eliminates the animation deformity. It comes with its own issues now. But as you alluded to, the reason we can do this now and not have the same problems we had back in the 80s when we were doing the same procedure is because our implants have changed and with the introduction of things such as allodermesh, um, acelloderma matrix, all of these different additional devices that we can use to protect the implant and decrease these rates of capsular contracture. Yeah, and that's uh, the same with the cosmetic breast augmentations. The, because the implants are better, uh, going subfascial or subglandular really has become a, a much better option. And I don't love the animation deformity I see with some of my subpectoral reconstructions. Now, some of them I have to do because the patients are so thin and they're right. competing and they're doing Especially whatever. in the bodybuilders. They don't, it's right. very obvious, especially because they have to go on stage in bikinis 
and flex their muscles. That's part of their job description. Yep. And so when they flex their muscles, you can really see the implants moving. The average person with implants, they may have a little bit of breast tissue. It's not that disconcerting to them, really. But especially in the bodybuilder population, being under the muscle is a big problem. But the other problem then becomes, if you put it subfascial or subglandular in these patients, is they have no fat. Right. So then you <laughs> so see like kind of like a mastectomy patient. Yeah, it is. I mean, then you have like a, you know, the sort of the device under the skin kind of look. But but because the devices are better, yes, um, I'm much more uh, likely to do a subfascial augmentation, and I do a lot subfascial. I don't. Mm-hmm really see why to go subglandular over subfascial. I like that extra layer. I think it is, it's enough. It's it substantial. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I do it that way. It's easy enough to do. And, uh, both of the, um, augmentations I did this week were subfascial and they look fantastic. The recovery is easier. You don't have that, that pec, you know, annoyance and the, mm-hmm. and the spasms. And you don't have to worry about cutting the pec to eliminate a lot of those uh, animation problems, which I, I do because I, when I do go subpectoral, I have a very specific way of doing it that it does look awesome. And I want to get as much cleavage as I can. If you look at my Instagram, cleavage is the name of the game. That's what I, that's what I do. And that's why people come here because they, they don't want that, that big, wide, you know, fist of space in between their, their implants. They want it to be, get them as close together as they can. And some people's anatomy, you know, you can't do that. It's just, it's how it is. You know, they have a wide sternum. They have, their pec is, you know, starting way far out lateral. Like there's. But in those patients, a subglandular, a subfascial. Much better. Is much better. Because you're not limited by the insertion. Exactly. Of the pectoralis. And you can cross over the sternum a little bit easier and get the cleavage. You know what also helps to get cleavage? 600 cc implants. <laughs> I, maybe that's why my my Instagram looks the way that it does, Doctor Ravelli. I think you've hit the nail on the head. But so that's when a, you have large breasts, you have cleavage. Hmm. 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 <laughs> yes, I think I'm beginning to see a pattern here. Um, they found me out. Yeah, that's where you know the action is. Is that you know patients want cleavage, Jeff? You if you're a five foot nine female and you're trying to get uh, cleavage and you have a, you know, 36 inch back or 38 inch back and you put in 300 CC implants. It's not going to do it. It's not going to do it. I I mean, you'll, you'll have some augmentation, but it's not going to be that wow factor that you're looking for. That, that's where a 500 CC or 600 CC implant really makes the difference because you need that volume to get that look. And it doesn't have to be the high profiles. In fact, I did uh, moderate pluses this week of, you know, different sizes. But the moderate pluses with, you know, patients that have some breast tissue, look they, fantastic. they look awesome. Yeah. And, they, and they're a little wider, so you get a little more cleavage. They're not as narrow. And, man, I was so happy. In fact, one of the patients we talked about high profile put in the high profiles, and it looked like they looked like torpedoes. Yeah. They did. They just looked like narrow, thin you know, balls of torpedo and they didn't look good. And so then I switched, uh, switched to the sizers to the moderate plus, check that out, home run. And it was like yeah. a no brainer. Yeah. That's kind of my range to do highs, highs and moderate plus probably 50, 50, but let's talk hmm. a little bit about, um, so I want to go back a little bit to subglandular. So we talked about the, um, cons of submuscular 
and why we were seeing more people switching to subglandular. Let's talk about the, the cons of subglandular a little bit. The main one being, like we alluded to earlier, is this capsular contracture. So capsular contracture is when the capsule that forms around the implant is which is totally normal for it to form, but it's usually very thin and cobwebby. Capsular contracture is when that capsule gets very thick and it can become painful. It can even be disfiguring. And so we historically saw that more often with subglandular. But I think one of the things that has changed are, like you mentioned, implant devices are much more stable. They're less likely to rupture. They're less likely to have small microscopic bleeding of silicone, which I think contributed to some of the capsular contracture. But also technique. We've learned a lot as a specialty in terms of how to put implants in in a way that preserves blood supply, that doesn't damage tissues unnecessarily, and that prevents any kind of microscopic bacteria from getting in and around the implant. And we do have evidence that that microscopic bacteria can contribute it to future capsular contracture. So we've refined our techniques. We have better devices. What I and I maybe someone out there can help me with this. I have not seen an updated study on subglandular versus submuscular in the current age using these better implants and techniques to see if there's a difference now. That I don't have information on. Yeah, I haven't seen that either. And I would be curious because just anecdotally in my practice, and I don't do 600 implants a year, um, but you know, I do, I do 100, you know, I do somewhere in that 75 to 125 range every year, I I don't see as much capsular contracture, period. Yeah. I mean, the uh, just the rate has dropped significantly. Yeah. I and think I think that's not, the devices. I think it's the devices and I think it's our techniques. Yeah. You know, I, mean, having, I think the techniques are better, but yeah. I mean, having, the operation hasn't changed that much that I can uh, ride it on that. I think it has. I think back in the 90s, you know, earlier or around that time period, people were a little bit more rough with the tissues. Um, there's a lot more blunt dissection, which means a lot more bleeding. We didn't have as good infection control. I think using Keller funnels, Keller funnel. which is a, a great device to protect the implant from touching the skin and getting, you know, micro bacteria on the implant. I think all these things have really helped. So I am yeah, no, right. way less um, skeptical about doing subfascial or subglandular implants because I have a lot of patients where I do need to do it. Subfascial for my bodybuilders, um, for my tuberous breast, which I have a fair amount of patients, they need a subglandular implant. Yep. So I have definitely become more comfortable using that plane when needed. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I guess, I guess, you know, just thinking it through, the, the Keller funnel, um, the uh, betadine, uh, mm -hmm. irrigations, the covering the nipples, yeah. like doing all the things yeah. that you're yeah, supposed you're right. to do. No, there's, there's yeah. a lot. The, the operation is still sort of the same in terms of the anatomy and how we're going to manage the anatomy, but the, the device protection and the, the delivery of the device into the pocket. Yeah. Cause we used to just shove those implants in, which yeah. had to have caused damage to had the to. implants, especially older model implants. Yes. And maybe they got a little bit of micro leakage of silicone, which set up an inflammatory response and capsular oh, contracture. Right. But now we're using Keller funnels. The device goes in smoothly. It's not being traumatized. Like I think all these things have helped. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, retract my statement that it hasn't changed much. It has changed a lot in terms of the surrounding tech, mm -hmm. which, yeah, I think definitely if you're talking about micro contaminations and, 
and little injuries to the to the implants that cause the inflammatory responses responsible for capsular contracture, then sure. Then then yeah, it is it is a lot better. Yeah. And and that's the thing, as I do I can tell you, like the capsular contracture rate is it is really, you know, I'm gonna knock wood because like yeah. I haven't had one in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> they still happen. I think I've I get about one or two a year and they drive me bananas. Ugh, yeah. You know, so that's like if I'm doing a hundred you know, cases or 75 cases, it's probably 2%. 2%? Not bad. 3%. Yeah. I think the expected rate is 7 to 15% oh, depending on the depending on the study that you read. So that that may need to be adjusted. That's yeah. a that's a good uh that's a good project for someone else because I I'm not going to do that. I have I have so many projects going right now. I just want to want to hide under the sofa. I'm afraid of them all. Yeah, no, that we definitely should. If it hasn't been done yet, I think we should get a couple of high volume centers together and, and look at those numbers. Yeah, there's uh, and there's a bunch of places that that's kind of all they do, and they're the ones that should probably be looking at it. And you know, it's uh, it, it's good information again for our patients. The, the reason we do this podcast is so that you, the listeners, have the information when you're going into your plastic surgeons, and also you know for plastic surgeons that are trying to learn about aesthetics, because we have a lot of residents and fellows that listen to this podcast. I mean, these are you know, you want to be, you want to be asking the questions, even when the data is presented to you, is that data valid? Where did it come from? What kind of investigator bias is there? You know, I, unless I see more than a 14%, you know, difference in something, because I think there's a 14% investigator enthusiasm, <laughs> you know, bias on every single study. Because they wanted to study it. They saw something. They wanted to study it. They wanted to prove it. So if it's 14%, is like, well, then there's really no difference. <laughs> but if there's 21% difference, okay, a, I'll give it to difference. them. That's a difference. If there's 30% difference, I'm going to go. But 14%, mm, 11%, forget it. There's no difference. 5% difference, forget it. Not <laughs> Investigator bias. Investigator enthusiasm. Too excited. You know, because they just, they rig the, you, you don't do it on purpose. But you rig your investigations. You you have to because you 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 decided to study this, and th this is not to disparage anybody who's scientifically trying to prove things out and do. I I commend you all, and I do it myself. But I also have to like take that step back and say, what does this data really mean? Should we be making decisions on this data? Is it is it really valid? Do I need to you know? do a, you know, a, a, a non-capsular contracture dance every time I walk into the operating room. Cause if I do, then, you know, there's a 14% less capsular contracture rate. Well, no, because 14% is not enough in my book. So don't do the dance, but whatever that, whatever that intervention is, it needs to, to really have some impact and you have to be able to measure it. And so how these studies are done and how they, they happen really, um, and, and then how they're reported is really important and it's not and I'm not talking about this for you know the listener but you know when you hear stuff quoted to you you know ask the questions like you know well, is that does that is that significant does that make a difference for me you know and I I could tell you a whole story about you know my son and his leukemia treatments and and investigator bias and that would probably just send everybody up in arms and go to their hospital and, you know start yelling at people so I won't tell it today but I will tell it eventually the um the reality is, is you got to ask those questions. Yep. Or, or talk to your plastic surgeon. Yeah. Well, we'll ask your plastic <laughs> surgeon. That's the key. Which one of these implants do you like? Why do you like it? Do you have a, is there something that, you know, you know, any of those things, you know, uh, am I a good candidate for this operation is a great question because the plastic surgeon will say to you, yeah, you're a great candidate. You got some breast tissue to cover it over. I'm going to do it subglandular. I'm going to do it subfascial. And 
you know, there's no reason to pick up the muscle. These implants are amazing, blah, 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 blah. Or you say, well, what do you think? Do I have enough breast tissue? You know, you don't have enough breast tissue. We really should go submuscular. Otherwise, it's going to look like you got two rocks on your chest and that's no right. good. So they'll, they'll tell you that, you know, the people that do a lot of this, they, they, know, they, know, they know what's going to work. Doing. They do. They, they, yeah. you're at, if you're at the office of a board certified plastic surgeon who comes to the meetings and does all the, the ongoing education, they know. They, yeah. they will be able to guide you very well. Right. And that, we didn't talk about that, but you, you you brought it up. That is the other downside of the subglandular is that if you are very thin or you don't have a lot of your own breast tissue, the implant does become more visible. The edges of it on the sides, up top, you can see it. The rippling of the implant, which is inherent to all implants, can be more visible. So those patients historically, we've said, have to go submuscular. But it again, it's always a discussion because the weightlifting patients, they have no fat, but yet we put them over their muscles. So there's there's gradations and there's there's lots of things to consider and there is no right or wrong answer by any stretch of the imagination. It's just whatever makes sense for you in agreement with your agreement in agreement with your plastic surgeon. I think also you should keep in mind fat grafting is a possibility for those thin patients cuz I if they have fat. If they have fat. I mean, I have one patient who has like body fat of like 0.2% who has 800 cc implants in she's four foot 11 or five feet tall and it's there's you can't be submuscular with an 800 cc implant in somebody that size it yeah. is going to be under the skin basically because right. there's no breast tissue the muscles not large enough to and cover so that's it, it. The, the only thing you can do is try to fat graft it try to use an implant that doesn't ripple as much as because they they all have ripples it's just, you just don't see them if there's some coverage yeah. yeah that's kind of the natural position of an implant once you and we know this stuff from MRI studies, and so we we know what the implants do when they go into the body, and it's just a uh, you got you got to go to somebody who's got some experience and knows what they're talking about, who can guide you the best. Absolutely. Well, I think that's it for implant placement. So, without any further ado, this is the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast coming to you from the nine hundred two one zero. If you like what you heard on the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast and want to get in touch with either Dr. Ravello or myself, this is how to do it. You can reach me at the website, ravelloplasticsurgery.com. You can reach out to the office directly through the website with any questions or consult requests, or you can call the office directly at 310-954-1355. And you can reach me on Instagram at Ravello Plastic Surgery. And to reach me, the phone number is 310-777-8800. My website is drcalvert.com, drcalvert.com. Instagram, Dr. J. Calvert. And of course, you may want to check out our YouTube channel for the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast, which is simply that, Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast. Hope to see you all in the office very soon. Oh.